Hello and welcome to the Resilience Research Group's monthly seminar series. Each week we will be joined by a panel of researchers, organisations, health and social care workers and the public to discuss one topic related to resilience. This week we will be discussing child and adolescent resilience. Thank you so much for joining us today for another in the series of podcasts that we are creating from the uh, Resilience Research Group. Um, it's lovely to have you all here today. What we're going to do first of all is probably go around and introduce ourselves. So if I start off and then I'll hand to Jennifer. Um, my name is Dr. Seanich Anderson and I am a uh, neurodiversity consultant and research psychologist. Um, I'm a member of the steering committee of this um, resilience research group and I've carried out research uh, into uh, attachment disorder, um, autism and transition from primary to secondary school and more recently in the last 10 years I've been con concentrating on neurodiversity and tics and tic disorders like Tourette's syndrome. Hi I'm Dr Jennifer McGowan I'm a lecturer at UCL and founder of the Resilience Research Group and my interests are in resilience in relation to health psychology and lifespan aging. Thank you for this opportunity. So I'm Gretchen Pianca. I'm a primary care pediatrician in Maine um, and I'm the founder of a program um, called Resilience University, which is an initiative that I started to try to bring what we know from the research about resilience into primary care. So working with families. Hi everyone, um, I'm Elena Parrott. I'm a first year PhD student at UCL in the Department of Clinical Education and Health Psychology. Um, before beginning my PhD, I worked as a secondary school teacher. Um, my current PhD research is part of a larger project that aims to use schools as community hubs um, to follow the resilient, foster the resilient recovery of marginalized displaced communities um, in Indonesia following an earthquake and tsunami in 2018. Uh, I'm specifically interested in local contextual understandings of resilience amongst young people and the role of the teacher in fostering this resilience. Well, hi there, uh, my name is Linda Turk. Um, I'm an autism specialist teacher. Um, I've been working with children with uh, special educational needs and disabilities for uh, just over 20 years now, but I've only just recently qualified as a primary school teacher um, in England. Uh, my specialism is ASD and um, helping children to develop resilience as part of their educational program. Yes, hello everybody. I'm Orit from Israel. I'm working the, near the border with Gaza. So as a result of it, I'm very involved in uh, trauma and resilience research, mainly with uh, healthy population, used to call healthy population, although they are suffering from a kind of PTS and other stress responses as a result of being exposure to terror attacked more than two decades. I'm also involved in a huge research in order to understand the epigenetic effects of being exposure to ongoing uh, traumatic stress, including a part of resiliency. I'm also full professor in the academia, forgot to let you know, I'm, and I'm a social worker by trained, 
also work with bereaved families in Israel. Fantastic. It's really a, an international audience that we, that we have today, which is uh, it's really fantastic. So we've, we've got some questions around this theme of childhood and adolescent resilience. And um, if I can sort of put them to you and we can begin to, to discuss them and you can um, you know, express your opinions, et cetera, or talk about research in regards to that uh, topic. Um, so one of the first questions I think that comes into people's minds is, you know, why is resilience in children and adolescents important? Why should we be paying attention to it? Would anybody like to kick off with um, their, their opinions about that question? Um, I think firstly, it's important to remember that children and young people are especially vulnerable to adversity. Uh, so children are incapable of providing for themselves. They rely on having supportive adults around them. They don't have fully developed internal resources such as emotional regulation and coping resources. So that makes it really important we focus on building their resilience. And as well as that vulnerability, I think we need to remember how often young people are exposed to a form of adversity that could threaten their normative developments, whether that's a disaster, which is becoming increasingly prevalent with climate change, there's more floods than there were in the past, there's tsunamis, earthquakes, um, and more recently you've seen the COVID-19 pandemic and how that has negatively impacted children with the school closures particularly. Um, and children also suffer personal trauma, such as millions of children are affected by child abuse. So I think it's that combination of the vulnerability and the exposure that means it's really important we focus on fostering resilience in young people. Yeah, I would add that um, in my work with families, I feel like the building the resilience when they're little, helping them to understand that this unpleasant moment is going to come and it's going to go and teaching them those coping skills that they need during that time where things are not pleasant helps them lifelong. So we're looking at all these things that we are drowning as a medical system trying to treat in adults. And most of them we know arise from these adverse childhood experiences. So if we can help offset that impact of the adversity, which is, you know, at times and in certain situations, um, almost ubiquitous for children in some form, if we can help to offset that by building that resilience, then they can become healthier lifelong. And there's that really important window, especially when they're super little and they're just learning kind of by osmosis <laughs> where we can teach them those skills. I think it's important as life are always challenging, so children need to be trained uh, to how to be resilient or how to cope with a lot of adversities. And some of them are expected, but some of them are unexpected. So I think it's very, very essential component in our life. On the other hand, I think it's kind of illusion that we think that we can train everybody to be resilient against a lot of adversities that we are encountered during our lives. So although I believe that it's important to help children and adolescents to develop a kind of way to be resilient, I am realizing that it's a kind of a potential um, or in 
I think one of the reasons that it's very important to help children uh, to learn resilience is because um, it helps them to actually, if we're looking at them as individuals, um, we want them to try their best to meet the outcomes that are important to them. And the only way that they can do that is to actually learn to deal with and cope with failure. I'm just going to jump in. And although I'm not um, an expert in resilience at all, I haven't done any research into resilience. I remember asking previously in a podcast that we were doing, you know, can we train people to be resilient? Can we teach them to be resilient? And I think it was um, a quite an interesting not split, but it seemed to provoke a lot of different conversation about, well, actually, is that then sort of looking at the individual as almost blaming them for not being resilient enough or not having these sort of skills when actually it's the institutions and other aspects of the society that they're in that in some way is sort of failing them um, and but but I, I do as a as a parent uh, and a psychologist I kind of think we can instill some um, some resilience uh, you know as we're as we're talking about but does anyone else have a view of that it seems like a, a sort of balance or a juxtaposition of two sort of different views there does, does anyone um, have a feeling about that so this has been part of what I've been really interested in. You know, first we have this list of adverse childhood experiences. You really don't want your kids to have those. Now we have this list of positive childhood experiences. Those help you raise sturdy children. Now you're supposed to have all those. And you know, for parents, it's like, oh gosh, I shouldn't have those. Now I need those. I don't have those, but I have a lot of those. Oh no. And so much of it is that kind of just um, community, like the whole everything that's going on. And as a parent, how much control do you have over a lot of that? Like you're saying, you know, a lot of it is society and cultural and we need to help economic, we need to change, we need to shift a lot of stuff to help people, you know, raise healthy children. The way I look at it when I'm talking to families is sort of like, well, Okay, you know, so maybe you go into a community after a hurricane and there's one house standing and it's a pink house with blue shutters. You know, it's not going to help to paint all the new houses pink with blue shutters. You know, like that thing that made that one house stand is something internal. So yes, there are external things. Those are there. That's real. But we can help shore your kid up and strengthen them from the inside out. And I use the analogy of like we put fluoride in the water. I don't know if you guys do that in England, <laughs> but we put fluoride in the water here because not because everybody needs it, but because it helps some families you know some teeth really need that to stay strong so that's the way I look at it we can't take away all the factors but we can build your children up kind of from the inside so when they meet that adversity you know they're less likely to be knocked over by it so they're more likely to have some skills to have you know a way of walking into adversity and not feeling like it's quite so overwhelming so that's my two cents I can share with you that we trained uh, children in their kindergarten how to do brief exercise in order to cope with siren as results of the war. And people ask us why you did it? Because they are so small children. And we think that if the child have a few skills that help him to manage in a stressful situation, it will help them. And when we do a kind of a follow-up, what happened to those children, they 
train their parents because they teach them. We uh, prepare a song that we uh, help the children to sing this song and the song include all the brief exercises and help them to cope. You know, the alarm is less than one minute and then they train their uh, parents and all the family all together used to do it when they heard the siren. And it helped the family to feel that they have something to do. They have something to do together as a family. And when we talk about cohesiveness and we talk about how to deal with, what to do, not to feel so helplessness. So all this kind of intervention help them to cope and feel that they have enough a power to deal with, although they are three, four, five years old. I think actually people have made some really, really good points. Um, and one of the things that I've seen um, in my experience of working with children with autism is that stress management is incredibly important to their ability to function just within society and manage themselves. The emotional regulation is such an important part of them to um, of them being able to actually um, create the lives that they want and to achieve the things that they want to achieve. And part of that is actually um, making sure that uh, the stress that they are undergoing is in of the curriculum that we planned for the children. So besides the academic achievement, we want them to actually have um, situations that they find uncomfortable so that they can actually grow and uh, develop from those to in order to build resilience. And much like Oris has said, we find that the giving them that opportunity to actually overcome those experiences and to deal with that with more in the future. And it gives them better confidence so that they're actually able to go on and do more. That's um, quite nicely leading on to the question of, you know, what impact could it have on children and adolescents who have low resilience? So what kind of trajectory is, is sort of facing that group? Uh, what, what could we say about that really in terms of them facing challenges, et cetera, if they have low resilience? Do you think that there is a child with no resilience? Do you think every child has resilience? Is that? It depends what we believe, because if we are adopt Bonanno concept, so in each of us, there is a kind of resiliency. So maybe we need to help them to develop it or to be aware of it but we have something in our organ, let's say it like this. So I think that is a really, really interesting question because when we're talking about resilience, we're talking about our definition of resilience and the expectations that we have of children in a society or within the systems that we've set up and the way that we expect them to function as individuals um, and as citizens. Um, and sometimes uh, that resilience, that internal resilience of theirs is their ability to opt in or opt out of a system. So it could be that actually if they're feeling overwhelmed and if they're feeling that um, it's not a situation that they want 
to be in, their resilient response is to not participate. And I think sometimes um, as neurotypical individuals, we can not understand what that looks like um, in somebody who has a disability and how that in itself is actually a sign of resilience. So I think of resilience as kind of distress tolerance for my um, kids when I'm working with families and exactly like Linda and Ora just said, I, I feel like like kids know, even when I'm working with them when they're like three, they know that they don't feel good and that they need help to get through this moment where they kind of don't feel good and something is going wrong. And then if they don't get that help, they end up, you know, having a meltdown, the parents yell at them, they send them to their room, you go into, you know, negative parenting world. Um, that's again, most of my, my time is spent talking about parenting with, with families and resilience. But um, they also know, like when they're hungry, they know what they need. When they're cold, they know what they need. When they're tired, they usually know what they need. But when they're sad or angry or frustrated or scared, terrified, overwhelmed, you know, whatever, like those other things, we often don't kind of know what we need. So instead of being able to respond with something to do or say or an action or a self-care strategy, a coping mechanism, we either act out or shut down or get angry, you know, something happens and we, <laughs> and that's where we're no longer really tolerant. We're not that resilient. Instead of being that nice willow wafting in the wind, we're just a big old dead oak branch, you know, crashing down and falling. So yeah, I use that analogy with families too. You know, we're, we're not, this is something you already have. This is already within you. You're just gonna learn how to use it in those moments. So, and the kids, even like the three-year-olds, I've been amazed like talking about, you know, taking this forward, but it's really early that they want to learn how to take care of themselves when they don't feel good. Like they love that. I have little two-year-olds who learn breathing exercises and just do them on their own when they don't feel good. <laughs> They've like figured it out. Oh, this helps me when, you know, when I'm feeling bored or sad or frustrated. So I think there is an internal component. And then if we foster that early enough, it does carry on lifelong. And, and those teenagers too, it's a little harder when I'm working with teens because I feel like they're in that place where they're like, whatever you say, Miss Grown Up, I am not going to do. <laughs> so so I'm working with uh, um, teens. I think that message might come better from other teens. So we're doing some initiatives around that in our uh, high schools. But I think it's always there. We can always foster it. That's, that's great. And great examples there as well of, of how to speak to young people about their resilience too. And it's making me think about something that Ellie said um, earlier on. You, I think you said something like children may be incapable of providing for themselves. So that, that feels as though it might be a bit relevant uh, here. Uh, so yeah, I think it's important to think of resilience as on a continuum and something that changes over time. So building on what the others have said, I don't think we can brand a child as resilient or not resilient because it's an interaction with their environment, which is likely to change. Um, and going back to what Orit was talking about earlier, I think in really extreme adverse situations in disaster settings, conflict settings, I think you have to be really careful not to look at PTSD symptoms as one end of the spectrum and resilience as the other. So I don't think trauma symptoms and resilience are opposites. Um, and actually those kind of seemingly adverse reactions can be a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And it's with a supportive environment, most children can recover with time, with support, without um, professional intervention. 
I think that's fantastic. And that's making me think about what Linda said about people with neurodiverse challenges as well, actually, maybe in a protective way, taking themselves out, perhaps, of whatever situation that they're in. Although, as neurotypical people, we might see that as withdrawal, actually, it's almost a protective thing. And that's their, their resilience strategies kind of almost kicking in. Um, I think that's so interesting. And, um, and, and, and somebody else earlier, I think maybe Gretchen was talking about this list of, you know, how can we, we can explain the characteristics of, of resilient children and teens, but, you know, how can we help families who find themselves without any of those factors? And actually their list is very heavy on one side of all the challenges um, that they're facing. Um, and what impact can we perhaps discuss about having high resilience? I mean, Again, if there's a, a kind of continuum, if, if, if there is high resilience in, the, in a certain individual, you know, what impact would that have on them, I wonder? What could we say about, about that? I could just, um, I think when we were looking at the positive childhood experiences, to me, those are the things that help. Those are those inner factors that help. So we've made a list of things like being able to talk about your feelings and feeling supported and, you know, feeling like you belong and things like those are those are feelings. Those are kind of some of the, we've started to label the, the, the internal factors that you might need that might help you be resilient. And we know that those offset the long-term mental health impact of the ACEs. So I think the more kind of, you know, that same, that kind of willow branch thing, you're not going to break. Yes, it's going to be unpleasant. We're going to go through this, but your family supported your, you, your mom protected you. You know, some of the refugee studies are incredible. You know, the, like, or it was saying, you know, these incredible adversities that people go through. And then, um, you know, they're, and like Ellie said, they're okay at the end. You know, their family supported them. They never felt like they didn't belong. They continued with their community traditions the best they could. You know, they had all those positive childhood experiences, which helped to maintain that inner resilience. And then they went through what was just an unbearable period of time, but they didn't have the long-term mental health, you know, problems that most of us would think, oh my gosh, you know, that would be, that would, you'd end up with those later, so. Thank you. And, and can I just uh, ask you to confirm for our non-specialist audience what ACEs are? Sure, yeah. So the adverse childhood experiences. So there's sort of a, a set of those, and now we have a set of positive childhood experiences, or PCEs. <laughs> so. I think it's, it's stressed the idea that people can cope with a lot of adversities more than we think. And I think it's important to remember it that we have more strength than we think as a human being, including children and adolescents. And I think that adolescents may be more resilient than adults because they are in a kind of transition that they try to do a lot of things, sometimes beyond the normal scope that help the community, help the people to overcome. And I think that from time to time, we need to do the switch and the parents as well, the adults world need to do a switch to understand and to reveal and to explore and to enable the adolescents to do a lot of things in order to be a part of a recovery processes, reconciliations um, and they rebuild the community as a whole, including the families, schools, etc.
it, it almost makes me think a little bit like even just a small step would be to believe uh, in your own resilience, you know, even without any kind of sort of interventions, etc. But a first step is to almost have a belief in I, I can be resilient, I, you know, having that, that positive view. I mean, it, there's some exciting research coming out about the po power of positive childhood experiences in offsetting the long-term impact of childhood adversity. Somebody mentioned uh, uh, mental health, for example. And one of these positive experiences is the ability to talk about feelings and feeling supported by your family. We've, we've spoken about that already, especially during challenging times. Can you um, explain a little bit more about how something as simple as talking about your feelings with your family can foster resilience if we believe that's that's possible? How can that how could we um, explain that a little bit more? So when we think about um, the things that help children to develop um, and to develop that resilience, um, we always think about the protective factors that need to be put in place for them. And one of those things is actually being able to identify the things that they are feeling inside and being able to speak about that, because part of their protective factors is being able to communicate what they're feeling. So that way they don't um, they display more emotional regulation and they don't become as overwhelmed. So what we find is that in the United Kingdom, actually within the early years curriculum, they've built in something called, um, uh, let's think, what is it called now? Effective strategies, um, which is basically ways that children can build uh, resilience and can actually um, develop their learning strategies. So it's actually been identified to such a degree that it's now actually part of the curriculum in the early years in the UK. So part of that is active learning, being able to correct their mistakes or keeping uh, going when they encounter problems um, that are difficult. And actually these are things that practitioners need to assess on. Um, Things like being able to move between their ideas or review progress, things along those lines. And it all again falls into uh, falls in line with being able to identify what they're doing, what they're feeling and actually um, communicate that to other people. So the idea is that if they're able to do that, then actually there will be uh, sort of more balanced as individuals. And that in itself will develop resilience, which will help them in the future. Yeah, I completely agree with Linda, um, but also to add to that, I think rather than it just being the actual act of talking to your family that's important for resilience, I think it's the idea that there must be a supportive context there where the child is being listened to. So actually having a supportive family environment is really key, a key protective factor to build a child's resilience. Um, and even though the talking itself is important, um, being able to talk suggests warm, consistent parenting, suggests a reciprocal relationship, uh, and it's that support that I think really scaffolds a child's resilience. So what Ellie was saying is exactly what I end up working on with families, because I, I usually start, so I say the magic is in the meltdowns. So bring me your meltdowns and we'll figure out what went wrong. And because the parents want to do that calm co-regulation space, you know, they want to do that. Most parents know that that's what they should be doing. But when the kid comes charging in the room and says, mom, my whatever broke and they're angry and they're yelling, the parent kind of gets a little bit 
starting to feel some way and responds with, um, excuse me, you can't talk to me like that. Go to your room, blah, blah, blah. And that feeling was never heard. That feeling was never actually talked about. So working with the parents on, okay, when do you have those big meltdown moments? And then how is everybody feeling? And we kind of do this. I just, I say, it's like, like you're being a detective and you, then you kind of go back on the timeline and figure out, well, how is everybody feeling right before that? Well, I was trying to load the dishwasher. I had a horrible day at work and I was in a really bad mood. And then the kid came in. How was the kid feeling? Well, he was starving. He didn't have his nap and now he broke his toy. And so I go, well, how is everybody feeling? Could you guys have talked about those feelings? Maybe pause, do a little bit of like, or it was saying, you know, sing a song deep breathing, do some sort of just stress relieving coping skill before, and you can actually prevent the meltdowns. And that's what I'm seeing with this program is they have parents are reporting like the meltdowns just stop. They just go away. Once people can start realizing, oh, wait, if we can recognize the feelings when they're little before they turn into the exploding or imploding mess, then we can not have as many of those meltdowns that we as the adults in the room, you know, part of that protective factor is actually being able to model what self-regulation looks like. So being able to offer um, a really uh, nice, stable response, uh, much like Ellie said, it's all fine and well to be able to talk about feelings, but actually you need somebody who is going to be able to show you what self good self-regulation actually looks like, is going to listen to you when you speak, and is going to actually help you through that difficult period so that the next time it doesn't become a panic, it's not a crisis, and you are able to actually regulate in a, a better way. That in itself is what builds the resilience. Uh, and can I ask something then? I mean, if, if we have families who are coming maybe to therapy or that are motivated to help uh, their child and themselves, what about those families where, you know, there are other challenges, so maybe, um, uh, alcohol or drug issues as well these are I guess maybe classified usually as sort of hard to reach and um, we know that during COVID and, and uh, confinement at different periods in different countries that for not for every child is home a safe place um, how do we how can we access those people how do we help those people that uh, have these extra challenges uh, would we say so fortunately for my population, a lot of my parents were still bringing their kids in for checkups or for vaccinations. So we did pretty good through COVID at, at continuing to see these families. And um, I had one example where um, this little boy was getting in trouble all the time. Mom was just angry all the time. Mom had lots of mental health issues and um, had, um, taken away Christmas because the children had been misbehaving so poorly. And I worked with them. I made him a little glitter jar and taught him how to do meditation. And he came back next time to work with me. And I was like, how's your glitter jar? And he looked really sad. He's like, well, mom took it away because I was misbehaving. I was like, oh. <laughs> so I kept working with him though. I'm like, okay, as long as you can breathe, we, <laughs> we can still do this. So I just focused kind of, and mom was sitting, she was in the room. She brought him to the appointments. She was that, she was engaged that much. But what when they got home, it sounded like things were just a disaster. Um, so, you know, while she's over there on her phone, I just worked with him and I'm like, okay, so when you start feeling yucky, I want you to do this breathing exercise. And so I taught him a couple different strategies. And when he came back the next time, I said, well, how's it going? And um, he said, well, now when mom's yelling at me, he said, I do my breathing, 
so that when she's done, I can tell her how I'm feeling. And in addition to feeling heartbroken, I was like, you go, mister. Like he had this sense of his ability to kind of take care of himself during something that was really unpleasant. And, you know, we did all the other social things. But in that moment, I was just like, wow, that's really cool. Like he just, he's becoming a willow tree. <laughs> like he's being able to kind of move with the flow. And he, he lives in that house. And the way our social services systems are, I don't think, there's anything that's going to change a lot of that. And we didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot of those social supports that we normally would have, like the after school programs. You know, he wasn't seeing his teachers. He didn't have any of those other adults in his life during that period of time. So anyway, I'm just super proud of that little kiddo. And I have a bunch of those kinds of stories from this program, which makes me think that this the research, if we can translate it and then help families like actually build their children up with these characteristics, we're really going to help. I think we have to divide between, let's say, developmental regular issues or adversities versus uh, COVID, war, terror, flooding. Because while we are talking about a natural disaster or war and terror, we are talking about shared reality. The situation that the children, adolescents, their parents are all in the same boat. So they need to do something all together. And we learn to know that in those cases, parents prefer to send their children to a therapy or to a kind of intervention, and they take a rest. And we, I can tell you that after two decades working in a war zone, it's not a good solution because better idea is to do something the family as a whole together to try to understand what we all need in order to cope with the situation and it's true while we are talking about war disaster and so forth while we are talking about a, a parents that their children have problems or vice versa, it's a different situation. And we, we uh, tend to find who will be the, um, uh, the um, ability to hold the family as a whole. From time to time, it's, it's the couple, from time to time is one parent, from time to time is a child in that family that help to start or to help the family to start to deal with the situation. And I, for me, it's more complex than to make a decision that always parents need to fulfill their parental role. Although we do a lot of effort to do that, but still there are situations that the children have more abilities to cope. If the parents is mentally ill or a drug addicted or alcoholist and so forth. So we need to, I think that instead of find one way to deal with how to help families to cope with, we need to find several ways and to be aware to uh, the differences or the variety of adversities that the, this family need to uh, cope with. And I think when the family context is difficult, then that's also when the school is there in a unique position to support and foster resilience. Firstly, because the child 
spend so much of their life, so much time in school. Um, and also because they're a trusted institution, the child is familiar with a school in the way they might not be with a uh, external mental health service, for example, which might feel unfamiliar, it might feel quite daunting. Um, but of course, as Orit said, this should always be done in partnership with the family so that these different systems work positively and interact together um, to benefit the child. And I think within that context, teachers are important adults in child's lives. They often are able to identify when a child is struggling, when a child needs support, um, as well as the importance of an overall supportive school ethos, a positive school climate, um, and the importance of peer relationships as well in schools. There can be social cohesion with other children that can scaffold and build a child's resilience. So for the um, positive childhood experiences, one of them is that at least two non-parent adults, you know, truly cared about me. Um, and I think so many times for kiddos, um, those are like my teacher, my coach, um, maybe it's the lunch lady, maybe it's the woman at the front desk that says hi to them every time they come to school. Um, you know, maybe it's the school nurse who gives them a band-aid when they hurt themselves, but those school people um, just are um, worth their weight in gold. Um, and I think that was, again, we looking at like kind of what COVID, um, the impact that had on, on children a lot of times, you know, just losing those connections was really hard. Um, I had a lot of kids who were saying they, um, you know, they miss miss so-and-so and miss so-and-so would be the lunch lady or somebody at school, somebody that, you know, like maybe we would have never had that conversation about how important this person was in their life if they weren't temporarily not in their life. So schools are crucial. Yeah, I completely agree uh, with Gretchen about the social importance of schools and the importance of the relationships that are built and fostered there. I also think the physical place of schools is actually very meaningful and important as well. Um, if a child is going through a time of instability, um, perhaps if there's been a physical disaster where they may have been displaced from their home in the situation such as if there was an earthquake, actually going to the physical location of a school can provide a sense of continuity in that type of setting um, and can be really meaningful for children to just reestablish that routine, that sense of normal, normality as well. I have a research in which I compare between family resilience, community resilience and school resilience. And we found that unfortunately school will not con was not contribute to the children resiliency they reduce the um, the amount of uh, uh, interpersonal violence but they didn't reduce the level of PTS responses and I think again you know maybe I am spec skeptical a little bit about uh, that we can do everything because as I said maybe we're a little bit different than other adversities but we try to figure out what happened in school that school was not uh, have a good effect in reducing uh, stress reactions and we learn to know that the, the, the teachers at school and other adults at school were so stressed because they have 
double exposure, the direct exposure and indirect exposure, and they have a lot of responsibility. And again, I think that from time to time we ask the teacher to do more than, more than they can do while they are need to hold 30, 40 children and there is a very stressful situation and the children stress each other by that and of course some of them are uh, become more violent or, or uh, unease or try to uh, react because there are there were fear and I think it's uh, again maybe I'm I'm uh, too um, tuned to war situation, but, but it's the reality is quite complex. And because I'm also a therapist, I think that when family came to to me to my office, it's a totally different than to stand in front of a class and there is a siren, and I have to take care on forty children. Overall it's really really demanding so i'm not blaming the teacher but they said it we didn't find it reduced this the stressful situation and we we all understand that school need to be a, a kind of apparatus that reduce the stress yeah i think or point was really interesting and i agree that in those kind of large scale disaster settings where teachers have also experienced the same trauma as the students, that can mean that they aren't able to provide the same support when they're navigating their own trauma symptoms as well. Um, however, on the other hand, there could also be the benefit that there is that shared sense of identity that the teachers know what the child has been through in, the, in a way that in a personal trauma case, for example, a teacher supporting a child who has been in an abusive home situation, they wouldn't be able to relate so much and have that shared sense of identity. Whereas if they've both experienced a large scale disaster, they've been through that together. Um, however, I think also in a lot of the very vulnerable contexts around the world, um, and even in the UK as well, there isn't a lot of training for teachers on how to support students with their resilience or with their mental health. Um, so I think a lot of teachers want to support children, but aren't entirely sure how to. So perhaps if that is part of their role or that is expected of them, there does need to be more training for teachers on that. So I think one of the nice things that I can add to what Ellie has just said is that having just recently done my PGCE, I know I waited 20 years, but uh, having done it here in the UK, there was quite a large focus on mental health as part of the university course that we did. Um, and actually, as somebody who comes from a background of, um, of SEND, I, I found that quite reassuring um, because I have been involved in education for a very long time, but just hadn't formally done the course. Um, and having worked in schools and have lots, having had lots of friends uh, who worked in education, I know that a lot of people were worried about the fact that there wasn't a huge focus on um, mental health uh, and well-being. But that definitely does seem to have changed. So I can actually reassure you that uh, we did spend quite a few lectures on that, Ellie, which was really good for us to see. Um, I think I come from a, a different perspective um, to Orit because obviously I'm in a specialist school and I've been working um, 
with children with disabilities for many, many years. And our school is actually set up with very small classes and a large focus of what we do is actually on um, children's mental health and helping them to build the skills that they need for them to be successful in society. So even though I'm actually teaching uh, math, English, science, biology, all the, all the other stuff that um, mainstream schools are teaching, and I've taught in mainstream as well, um, we also do have animal therapy. And um, part of, part of um, my curriculum planning is that um, I actually have slots for board games and social interactions and cooperative games. So I will teach my subjects, but I will teach it in a a way that actually allows children to interact with each other. So we'll create games where we're learning about life cycles, for example, but actually it's a board game and it's a turn-taking game and children have to actually interact with each other and they've got to build up those relationships and those friendships. You know, we have um, uh, an emotional uh, intervention called ELSA, uh, whereby children actually spend one-on-one -on -one time with um, people who are trained in emotional regulation. And it is about uh, emotional learning and being able to, again, identify their feelings and talk about it and emotional coaching and self-regulation. I seem to be coming back to all of the, the same things over and over, but that's built into the school day. So even though this is a specialist provision and the focus is different, I know more and more these things are being incorporated into mainstream schooling within England as well, actually across the UK, not just England across the UK and there is a much bigger focus on children's mental health and their ability to lead happy fulfilling lives rather than just academic achievement and I think it definitely is a way forward because as I was saying about the earliest foundation stage just the fact that there is this focus on uh, characteristics of effective learning people are starting from a very young age to introduce it into children's lives and to teach them uh, the things that they need to to be happy and um, and to be settled and to actually become resilient learners and resilient individuals. Thank you, Linda. And just for our non-specialist audience, could you please define SEND for us? Sure. Sorry, that's uh, special educational needs and disabilities. Thank you very much. So one of the last questions which sort of might lead on from this is, you know, is, is resilience in young people measurable? And, and if so, uh, how should this be measured? How can we measure the impact of what we're, we're doing and whether it is uh, increasing their resilience? How would, we, how would we go about measuring that? Perhaps you have some research uh, ideas. Sorry. Um, so I, um, I am trying to measure the impact of Resilience University and what I'm doing is measuring um, ACEs scores and then pediatric symptom checklist scores. So the PSC before and after they do this um, intervention with me. And um, I was initially just kind of doing the intervention because it felt like a good thing to do for families. And I was like, well, I'll just do this. We'll just see. Maybe thinking that like one or two measures might change a little bit or maybe it would have an impact on one thing. Um, and just my preliminary data is like 
25 plus percent reduction in pediatric symptom checklist scores, except in a few kids where their scores actually go up about the same amount. And it's interesting because I feel like those kids, I know like on an individual level, those are the ones where nobody talks about anything unpleasant and we just show up and we behave and you do not talk. When you don't feel good, you go away. And so in those families, I kind of disrupted things. I'm like, well, let's talk about feelings. So things got to look crazier. But I think um, to me, I feel like one of the things um, is looking at the unwanted behaviors in children and families. So it's kind of that kind of segues a little bit into like family resilience, but it's what was, what are the things that we're not allowing the families to talk to really in the way that Ellie said, like really talk about feelings, not just like say, hey, I'm feeling hungry, but like really talk about how you're feeling and the unpleasant feelings too. So what was getting in the way of that? And what often that looks like in reality is behavior problems, meltdowns, explosions, big messes at home. So if you measure <laughs> the reduction in that, which is sort of what the pediatric symptom checklist score looks at is kind of unwanted behaviors in, in children by parents report. I think it's really complicated to measure resilience, partly because there are so many different understandings of what resilience actually means. Um, and that is reflected in the variety of different scales that have been created. Um, some scales are more commonly used than others, but I think we have to overall to be really careful not to measure resilience as a fixed trait um, and think of it as a lot more nuanced than that. I and mean, there's some scales that have moved towards measuring protective factors. Um, so looking at, there's a student's resilience survey that looks at measuring peer relationships and teacher relationships and parent relationships um, and using that as a measure of resilience. There's, I've come across the child and youth resilience measure, I think it's by Michael Unger and his group, which really look at resilience as very contextually specific. And that includes items such as if I'm hungry, is there enough food? So factors that you wouldn't think of in the more traditional grit type understanding of resilience. Looking at resilience as a much wider process, it really does measure the factors around the child. So it acknowledges those structural factors um, in the wider community. So I think it is important to look beyond the individual child, beyond only their internal factors, but I do think it's still very complicated how we measure resilience. I agree with Ellie. We also uh, prefer to use Unger scale, and I think its uh, ecological concept is very, very important because it's the individual, the family, and the community as a whole. And I think also while we are talking about children and adolescents, it's also uh, very useful to use a school climate because it's again have free. Uh, subscales and also give us an idea what happened in school while we are talking about the relationship between the peers and the relationship between the children and their teachers and we also uh, try to capture academic achievements so I think it gives us more wider and deeper uh, picture about resiliency while we are talking about children and adolescents. Can I ask then, we're talking about children and adolescents during this, this uh, session today, but are there, you know, we're, we've kind of indicated that there are, there are longer term effects for the rest of their lives, uh, we believe, from their resilience or 
uh, whether it's low or high in, in childhood and what they've experienced. Um, are there are there things that we can talk about that? Are there expectations? Are there um, expectations that we might expect of adults that have been in these challenging circumstances? Can we measure in adulthood? I mean, it sounds as though it's very variable across somebody's lifetime, but what about those longer term aspects? I think that we need to think about learning from success because for me, resilience, it's a kind of a successful coping. So if the child or the adolescents or the adults be aware to what are the techniques or the strategies that help them to cope, to deal, to uh, manage, to navigate within the situation, they help them to develop a kind of inner manual, I can say, that help them to do it throughout their lives. And I think this is for me a kind of uh, understanding that I would be happy to develop. How to help people to learn from their success. I love what you just said, Orit. I think that the healthy coping skills, to me, that is so important. Once you have those, then when you're a grown up, you know, and something happens, you're not necessarily going to go to alcohol or pot or whatever it is. You're going to have something that you can do when you don't feel good. And then the next generation, you're going to pass on intergenerational resilience because your grandchildren and your children are going to watch you choosing a healthy coping skill and you're going to pass it along forward. So I, I feel like that um, measurement thing, again, you know, here, pediatrician, I behaviors and disease and stuff like that, but thinking about it from like my teenagers who are having, that's one of the things we're studying right now in the, in the schools is what is kind of, what is that emotional state that's leading the teens to choose pot, cutting, vaping, you know, all these things that we have just so much of, especially here in Maine. Um, like, where are they headspace emotion wise when they head towards that? Like, and how can we support them in shifting to healthier coping skills? So to me, that sort of measuring again, like the number of meltdowns, the number of, um, of substance use issues, the mental health things, like the problems that arise later are largely, it's, <laughs> the way I say it is a, the big unwanted behaviors arise from unmanageable emotions. So if if we can help them cope with the emotions then and they become more resilient then they won't have as many of those behaviors or the things that you know we try to control with laws and policing and regulation down the road that's going to get easier if people are are more resilient when thinking about resilience over time i really like the analogy of the dandelion and orchid children that is used i think by tom boise um that suggests most children are like dandelions so they're resilient, they thrive, they do well generally despite what is going on around them. However, some children like orchids, so they're especially sensitive, very responsive to if they don't have the right environmental conditions. But if they do have the right environmental conditions around them, then they really thrive, they really um, bloom. So I think we have to remember just because a child might not have the right conditions around them doesn't mean, using the flower analogy, that they can't bloom later on and actually in adulthood, they might be in a completely different environment that does allow them to thrive. 
And Jennifer, can I ask you a question? Because I, I can't remember if it was you that said this or you said this from a piece of research, but um, it made me sort of change uh, a little uh, way of how I think about resilience is that we perhaps shouldn't view resilience as an absence of symptoms or an absence. Can you, uh, can you remember uh, that it was quite a nice um, sort of example I'm putting you on the spot here. You are putting me on the spot. I wasn't expecting to have to, to be part of this conversation because this isn't my, my field of expertise, children. Um, it's possible I said that resilience is, or at least from the perspective of health psychology, resilience is about um, better than average. So it's not about saying that you're, um, you're not coping well if you, have, if you don't have resilience. It's about recognizing that people can can have a better life even than just not having depression or not having anxiety. Was was that it? Yes, yes, I think it was. I just I thought it was an interesting uh, idea that um, you know uh, this absence of a problem. Sorry for putting you on this. <laughs> it's not a problem. If uh, if that spurred anything in anyone, if anyone wants to say anything, feel free. Um, I think just. Overall, I think it's really important to think about what Anne Marston said about resilience being known as ordinary magic. And actually, it is amazing how children can bounce back or thrive despite being in these really adverse, really challenging situations. But it's not unique or special to that child. It is something that all children, I believe, can achieve with the right supportive relationships, with the right environmental conditions and support around them. I think from the just just um, wanted to go back to the fact that we keep talking about um, touching on in different ways the role of the parents and parental stress and to me that is so important so like with the teachers and the parents like Ellie and or were saying when they've experienced the you know disasters or war zones um, it, if we when we look at children a lot of times we're just hyper focused on the children and we have to include the parents we have to include the teachers um, we have to train them up to understand how to respond to children when they are not feeling very sturdy and when they need a little bit so we're modeling it as the grown-ups in their lives um, but I think there's a there's a part um, and I, I think it was Orit that said this, where, you know, it just has, we have to look the whole community, like we have to do this whole thing. We, even though a lot of times, one of the reasons I became a pediatrician was because everybody jumps up when you want to help the kids. It's great. You know, you get all the support and, you know, the parent who's an alcoholic or who's been out of work for a long time or, you know, sometimes people are, they almost give up. And so like not giving up on the parents and not giving up on the grownups in these children's lives and saying, well, how can we as a community rise up and help lower the parent stress. And with COVID, you know, that parent stress has just gone through the roof and we know that's affecting the kids. Um, and I, I feel like with my patient population, it's still not coming down. Like it hasn't really, the parents are still like a little bit on screech all the time. So helping with parent stress. And there's a lovely initiative through California, their Surgeon General um, has this whole roadmap for resilience, which includes all these like different pieces of the pie, you know, not just mental health and self-care, but also access to healthy food, access to nature, good sleep, like, you know, all the different things. So I sometimes use that when I'm working with families. I'm like, we, we might not be doing very well on this piece of pie right now, but let's look at all the ones where we can find. So I do kind of the strengths-based coaching, like what are the areas where you can 
you know, foster that resilience um, right now where based on where you are. I would like to add to what uh, just said that we also need to think about how to develop the community as a whole or the society as a whole in order to enforce resiliency. Because if we are thinking about education, if we are thinking about cultural activities, and if we are thinking about a lot of things that help people to feel that they are contained by the society as a whole. Somebody take care of them. We are talking about leadership. We are talking about uh, managing uh, uh, workplaces and so forth. So we have wider perspective how to create or to enforce resiliency while we are talking about regular life that we all encounter and we need somebody. So from time to time, the somebody is the community, the somebody is the leader, the somebody is the uh, manager, the team uh, supervisor and so forth. So I think that for me, resilience is a kind of umbrella that uh, include a lot of uh, liars that we need to uh, pay attention for them, not just the regular therapeutic situation or teacher-child situation, something that involved all, if we are talking about COVID, so it's a global envelope that we need to think about people that they have no access to vaccine, for example. So I think that if we are talking about it in a more wider perspective, we succeed to help people to develop more resiliency because they know at the end of the day that somebody will see them if they need. Great. Well, I take it that everybody has said what they what they wanted to. We've covered an enormous breadth of issues around resilience. It's such a it feels to me as somebody not not in the research in this field as such a massive topic from war and earthquake scenarios to our individual daily functioning and how we cope with bereavement and illness and those things that we know will will be in our lives and how we impart that to to our children um, and how to sort of instill resilience in individuals but also um, sort of government and institution responsibility as well um, tackling such big issues like um, the environment or poverty as well that must I guess impact on on us all as individuals. And that concludes the time we have for today's podcast. I'd like to thank our panel once again for being here and sharing their points of view. And thanks to you, our audience, for listening. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities and organisations dedicated to developing high-quality collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to understanding of and quality of resilience research and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.